The TARDIS is invaded by an alien presence and is then destroyed. The Doctor disappears. Ace, lost and alone, finds herself in a bizarre deserted city ruled by the tyrannical leech-like monster known as the Process. Lost voyagers drawn forward from ancient Gallifrey perform obsessive rituals in the ruins. The strands of time are tangled in a cat's cradle of dimensions. Only the Doctor can challenge the rule of the process and restore the stolen future. But the Doctor was destroyed long ago, before time began. certain of what you think you see. Sometimes the darkness seeped from the cracks and those it touched might get hurt. Ace had learned from her own bruises that no one who met the doctor was left unchanged. Yet he was kind, compassionate, spiky and often angry, vulnerable to all mortal foibles. But that might be deliberate. He embraced them eagerly as if they were toys. Lingering on one world or another as if to play them out or test their capacity. He was just as dangerous as the evil he attracted and opposed. So what if he did have eyes in the back of his head, had appalling taste in clothes, and careered around the universe in a time machine shaped like a police box? If he said it could change shape, she believed him. He was 25 out of 10 to be with. She prayed her time with him would never, ever end. She caught a flash of light in the window and realised that the doctor had been watching the reflection in the glass. Debbie Watsick was delivering food to the family of three at the next table. It was half past five on a Sunday afternoon in July. So why was the dusk gathering outside? The sky, which had been a Hollywood blue, was turning a lurid orange. The passers-by on Ealing Broadway seemed to be going through fits and starts of slow motion. Professor, said Ace to the doctor, but he shushed her into silence. Turning round, he pulled a silly face at the little girl, an angelic toddler of no more than two, seated in a high chair at the next table. She played her spoon into a bowl of ice cream while her parents fussed indulgently, their skin flickering the dead colour of mushroom soup. The clock above the kitchen door slid slowly down the wall, over the pelmet and dripped to the floor. Professor? Doctor? What's happening? The doctor put his hand up to the side of his head as if he was in pain. He had turned very pale. The little girl looked up at him. Hello, Alice, he whispered. You have lovely eyes. Around them, the perspective of the walls started to shift, closer here, then farther, until Ace could see through their opaque framework into the juddering reality outside. She clung to the sides of her chair tightly. Baked Alaska? asked Debbie, walking with their order across the shifting tiles of the floor. Alice's eyes were the colour of the stolen sky, framed by the fiery red gold of her hair. She gazed inquiringly at the doctor. He shook his head in despair. I don't know, he said. You tell me what happens next. The little girl turned her head and looked out of the window. Pussycat, she said. Meow, meow. They followed her gaze. A cat was sitting on the ruptured pavement outside, staring intently in at them. 
It wasn't a kitten. It was a very small, perfectly proportioned adult cat, and its coat was shimmering silver. Do you want this or not? said Debbie. The masaka, half congealed on the plate, opened out like a rose. Within its milk-white petals was a heart of fire. The doctor tipped forward onto the table with a moan of pain. Unable to use the disintegrating floor to reach him, Ace clambered over the table. The cutlery and condiments scuttled to get out of her way. She cradled and clung to the trembling doctor. Is he all right? said Alice's father, getting up from his place. You should call an ambulance, said Alice's mother. Debbie turned and ran for the kitchen. The doctor stared out of the window at the cat. What does it want? whispered Ace. What's happening? The sky pulsed balefully like a beacon with light that came from the north and perivale. A 207 bus sped past, its windows reflecting a barren desert. The whole concept and existence of Ealing Broadway was beginning to curl at the edges. The TARDIS choked the doctor. The cat rose and trotted up the street, out of view. With a sudden burst of energy, the doctor pulled himself free of Ace. Sending his chair clattering away, he staggered towards the door. The walls of the cafe began to resolve again, blotting out the abyss of clouds beyond them. Ace was hurrying after the doctor, but a shout from Debbie called her back. Here, she snapped. She slammed a plastic bag of 20 pence winnings from a pub fruit machine down on the table. Oi, shouted Debbie as Ace disappeared onto the Broadway. You didn't even eat it. She looked at the baked Alaska, already melting in the afternoon sunshine. Weirdies, agreed Alice's parents. Bye-bye, pussycat, said Alice, and got on with stirring her ice cream. Welcome, everyone, for the final episode of this first series of We're All Stories in the End. Fittingly, we're bringing down the curtain, or perhaps I should say closing the book, on series one, with one of the most important and often revered books in the Virgin New Adventures range, 1992's Cat's Cradle Times Crucible by Mark Platt. You remember Mark Platt, he wrote Ghostlight in season 26. This book, his first new adventure, would radically reframe our understanding of the Doctor, and of the Time Lords, and of the history of Gallifrey itself. But is it any good? Let's try to find Tim on the space-time visualiser and try to find out. Um, well, here we are on the final episode of the first series of World Stories in the End. It's the uh, end of term party. Um, We've both brought in games, we've both brought in snacks and treats, um, and I'm very terrified to be joined by someone who seems to be somewhere near Glasgow. <laughs> yes, I'm down on the Ayrshire coast, hello. Ah, oh, hello, how are you sir? Do you want to introduce yourself to the listener? Hello listener, um, I'm Tim Reed. I am half of the Randomizer podcast and uh, we discuss mostly Doctor Who in a randomly chosen way and uh, also very big fan of uh, Ian's other podcast, <laughs> All of Time and Space. Um, I've also enjoyed bits of the Electric Sodcast and um, have, I must confess, listened to only one episode of this particular podcast, partly because it's inspired me to go back to the books and I now don't want to spoil them. And I, in turn, am really, um, really excited and really pleased to have you on 
my show because I think Randomizer Podcast is one of the more um, certainly, it's it's lovely to listen to. I don't want to sound like some kind of weird Scottish fetishist, <laughs> but you're both of you have just really lovely speaking voices. It's erudite, it's clever, it's funny. Um, there is a an, a nice little edge to some of your observations and commentaries. But yeah, it's one of my absolute favourite Doctor Who shows. Well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's uh, we lurch forwards from time to time with large gaps in recording, but um, sort of driven by uh, I think it came out of just enjoying myself and Chaz having very free-form and scattershot conversations and thinking that we should actually record some of this and inflict it on the rest of the internet. So, humour me for a second <laughs> before we talk about Doctor Who. I, I have to ask you, so I have I have met approximately three people from Glasgow. <laughs> Two of them were definitely murderers. <laughs> and so I've always been terrified, not just of Glasgow, but of all of Scotland by extension. I've always been too terrified to go there. As someone who knows the area perhaps slightly better than me, am I wrong? Well, very few of my friends are murderers. And the, um, I think Glasgow's... number on that? Um, Percentage-wise? I well, I, that would have to, I'd have to quantify the number of friends I have, and that would be just a sad experience, I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I would say that Glasgow's had a reputation that it's really been shedding since probably it was the City of Culture in the late 80s, I think it was. It? No, hang on. I think it was City of Culture in the 90s, and we had the Garden Festival in the late 80s, which began a lot of rebuilding and so on of the city. And sure, it's not without its problems, but it's. Um, I have always... Loved it. And I'm not native. I sort of grew up in Aberdeen, but have sort of orbited Glasgow. Um, there's a line in uh, Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul, the Douglas Adams book, the second Dark Gently book, where he talks about Kate, uh, the main character, or the other main character, orbiting New York at a constant distance. <laughs> and um, I feel like that about Glasgow, that I've, I've lived in it for a while, but also mostly places around it. And it's it's kind of it's sort of adoptive home, the, set, the, the sort of city closest to my heart, if you like. So, um, And whereas Edinburgh is very pretty in postcard and instantly kind of, you know, glamorous, uh, Glasgow has a kind of, it's a bit harder to get to know, but I feel it's friendlier. Um, okay. So I guess, yeah, I'm slightly romanticising things. Um, I've barely murdered anybody at all as a Scottish person, just... Um, yeah, no. well, if you yeah, if you if you keep the numbers down, yeah, I'm sure. It's, I mean, I met one guy. To be fair, it was it was about six in the morning. It was in Dubai Airport, <laughs> and it was it was clearly the end of his holiday. He was trying to corral his family mm, onto a plane, mm. and when he let someone push in front of him in the queue, and I was behind him, and I rolled my eyes. He seriously, he looked like he was going to get a Stanley knife out and do me. <laughs> so that that was the moment for me. That was all. I have noticed that all drunks in other places are Glaswegian or Scottish, at least. That's yeah, it does seem to sort of be a transformation that occurs. So. There was a brilliant drunk in. So I went to university in Canterbury, and we had this brilliant drunk who would wear a kilt and bagpipes. <laughs> he bagpipes. wasn't in any way Scottish, but he'd always just be asleep on one of the um, one of the chair. Uh, Maybe it's protective, like nobody will mess if you've got the kilt. <laughs> Maybe it was like. A YTS thing in the eighties, and there was a understanding that if you wanted to pose as a drunk, you had to try and look a bit yeah. apart. So yeah, it's probably a tourist board initiative. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. I digress in a way which is 
borderline racist. No, consider yourself humoured. That's all right. If I bring anything to your glorious podcast, it's uh, an element of randomness. So, exactly. So, um, it's the end of the first series for me, um, and the book that we are talking about this show is. Uh, uh, it's it's gone. It's, we're off to a great start. <laughs> memorable is tome. Cat's Cradle Times Crucible. Is that it now? That came out in I want to say February of nineteen ninety two. In fact, it, it categorically did come out in. I'm sad enough. I can remember this shit. <laughs> That's good. I admire that. Yeah. No. Oh. Um Would that have been a book that you would have read at the time? Yes. Or? Yes, good lad. I was collecting the new adventures as they came because I think, like many people, um, I sort of watched as Doctor Who sort of didn't get announced um, throughout 1990. I remember a headline, uh, maybe in DWB magazine, that no new Who in 1990. And and there was that dawning realisation that had sort of been cancelled by stealth. Um, And so the new adventures were what we had uh, until the glorious launch of Big Finish. uh, drove any hope of ever owning all Doctor Who media beyond the dreams of others. <laughs> um, but uh, no, so I definitely would have picked them up as I came. And um, as I was saying to you before we started recording, my my worst ever Doctor Who related decision was walking into a bookshop and seeing the Dying Days on the shelf and going, "Oh, I'll get it next week." And then I think it was ten years later I got it on eBay for ten times the cover price or something. <laughs> um, but no, so yeah. definitely. Read, read them avidly. Um, although it's so long ago, uh, my memories are very, very slight. Um, and I think largely pinned around perhaps the cover art as well for mm. some of them. But in a fit of enthusiasm, um, because this was only the fifth of the series, I took a running start and have read through the Time Worm series into the, this first Cat's Cradle trilogy book um yeah so yeah thank you for re-inspiring me to go back to these. no no that's it's it's my pleasure to spread the the joy <laughs> and uh, and the love and and my cat's just down here doing a bit of meeping i don't know if that's coming through i hear it on yeah. the microphone he's he i don't know with him What's he's, the talk? he's not he's not in the same boat as me we tend to <laughs> prefer different books to each other yeah, um, needs its own podcast. Even Cat's Cradle is not. Ah, yeah. Either. Well, this because he is sort of silver in a in a in no way. It's more of a sort of a <laughs> fluffy grey. Hey, uh, are you are you the Banshee Circuit? <laughs> yeah, that only clicked for me when I reread the plot summary somewhere else. I was like, what was the cat again at the end? <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, and without getting ahead, well, we might as well get ahead because yeah. it's not like we're going to follow a, a rigorous plan or anything. It's not my MO. I don't. I don't think. When the cat reappears in the other two books in the trilogy, I don't think the author's got the same message or got the same notes. So perhaps where the confusion comes from, but I, I have—I think it's fair to say—close to no memory at all of the other ones. Um, so one is Warhead, and what's the other one? The other one, I'm afraid, is Witchmark. Ah, okay. And there's—I know Cartmel was one of those authors. Cartmel did Warhead, yeah. Right, yeah. I kind of look forward uh, to that because I, I do want to keep going. Yeah, Although, but I mean, Cartmel's. I'm gonna I'm gonna preface this by saying that my opinions are changing now that I'm reading the books again. Mm-hmm. But at the time of reading them, Cartmel's three books were my three favourites. Mm. Um, I don't want to I don't want that to act as any sort of spoiler <laughs> for the listeners when those books turn up. I don't want people to think that 
you know, I'm, I'm dyed in the wool. It might be that I've, I've changed my opinion. In a lot of ways, I have, because what I found is that the new adventures were really, really gun rather than frog, yes. really trad rather than rad. And what I'm discovering about the Eighth Doctor books is that they were a lot more freed up mm-hmm. and, and loose and, in, in a number of ways, more innovative. So I'm really enjoying reading sort of a, a few of each series at a time. I think it's also that getting out of your system thing, maybe with the new adventures. And um, they're sort of not so much gun rather than frock as gun and a distinct lack of frock, especially in John Peel's opener. With, uh, which oh, is yeah. Sort of like a historical, but with more breasts. And um, Well, t- I think four breasts. <laughs> I think there were Ace's breasts and Angula. Or the priestess, yeah. Or Enkidu. I can't remember yeah, which, Echidna, which priestess yeah. it was. But no, I, I, I sort of read that with increasingly raised eyebrows and kind of was just sort of casting my mind back to when I was exactly the target audience, i.e. a sort of teenage yeah. boy sort of thing. Yeah. And also just that thing of the, like Torchwood did when it started to like, ooh, we can do Doctor Who, but a bit adult, we're hey. A bit naughty. And then, of course, it was irredeemingly crass. <laughs> yeah. It's because, because what are you going to do? You're going to have a few swear words. Yeah. No, and a bit of some pub boobs. shagging and stuff. And stuff. It's, it's yeah. you know, I mean, if someone said to me now, um, and this, this won't happen, let me, let me say that. <laughs> but if someone said to me, um, Ian, I want you to write a really adult, uh, Doctor Who novel. It would be all about, you know, the Doctor feeling his age and having all of his <laughs> memories and remembering all of his companions. And there'd be very little plot. There'd be, it'd be a very literary kind of Marseille Missy novel where nothing really happens. But, but I, I remember uh, an old Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where they're looking at the TV guide and Cohen says, well, this says contains adult situations. What does that mean? And Hobbes is like, I think it means like doing your tax returns and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, darling, <laughs> it's like it's, it's like when you're when you're a teenager, you, know, you sort of think adult means one thing, and when you're actually there, it's like, yeah. yep, <clears throat> yeah, it's like, yeah, the, the doctor had been having a wee for well over three minutes by the time he sighed <laughs> and looked at his wristwatch. You know, it was like adult. that classic misprint of peeing over the shelf and enter the down the banament. <laughs> Do you remember that one? <laughs> oh, I just thought he had a really good prostate. <laughs> um, anyway, so so. To bring us on to the subject of Cat's Cradle, Time's Crucible. Oh, yes, that thing. Here too after, just going to call Time's Crucible. Yes. Because really, life's too short. Indeed. Um, the first thing I wrote down is that with this book, Mark Platt kind of reinvented Doctor Who fiction. Unfortunately, exactly one book after Paul Cornell reinvented <laughs> Doctor Who fan fiction. Yeah. Uh, how does that sit with you? Well, for sure. I, I, I did sort of struggle a bit reading uh, Revelation, the Time Worm one. Uh, and I did have more memory of it, though, partly because I've heard it talked about a bit more recently, perhaps. And so I, I, I came to Mark Platt. i got to say, actually, Ghost, Ghost Light is one of my favourite stories. It was then and it remains now. Um, something I just really enjoy. And so Mark Platt's style was actually really appealing to me. And so I I guess, yeah, I I came to it kind of not remembering much in the way of detail, but quickly things did come back to me, like the the Pythia or Pythia. I'm not Mm. sure which one of those is Pythia. Um, But the, um, so the old ancient Gallifreyan stuff, and you get your first talk of looms and Lungbarrow gets a mention, of course. And yeah. I, I think I'd sort of mudged up in my head 
lung barrow itself and that that had kind of stayed with fandom almost as a kind of a joke about how um we've got to go to great fictional lengths to ensure that time lords never have sex by making them woven from looms <laughs> yeah. so the seeds of that of course are in uh in cat's cradle and time's crucible um i know i, I first impressions reading it again um was uh, some stuff came back and some things I saw coming and I can't honestly say if that's because I that recalled them from last time or um, if it was genuinely that I'm very very clever but so I suspect that it's the former. Well, let's let's assume it's maybe a bit of one, a bit of the other, maybe Thank fifty you. fifty. Generous. I found an awful lot of this was very memorable, by which I mean things like the. The character names, because when you're a teenager mm. and you have to learn to read some of these very complicated, very long names, they do stay in your subconscious for the next thirty years. Well, you put the effort so, in. Yeah, Vial Varionsti Chevrel was, you know, that was that was in there. I think I um, had that in a restaurant once. It was. Um, I th- was it was it a, a sort of flat thing in in breadcrumbs? Yeah, yeah, with, with, yeah. No, I think and I then very before. very hot. It sort of burnt up yeah. a bit. Yeah, yeah vaguely trying to. Tie that into the plot, but um, <laughs> they, um, um, no, I, so, I, the names were a struggle actually, um, I, I, and a lot of the terminology, I guess, as well. So all the kind of various Gallifreyan names, and I think what um, Flight Through Entirety would call space names, <laughs> space names. <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, I mean, I really like some of them, like Sathralopy, <laughs> uh, which I, I may be pronouncing in an idiosyncratic way, but I've always liked that name. Mm. I th- and I and I do like elements of what Platt was doing with with all that lung barrow stuff, mm-hmm. and I think it's good that the the range didn't exactly finish with lung barrow, but it was the penultimate book, yeah. and this wasn't exactly the first book, but it was book five, and it was in many ways, you know, it, one could discount certain of the previous four books if one wanted to. Yeah, They're yeah. not all essential. So he kind of bookends the new adventures with, you know, this origin of Gallifrey, origin of the Doctor. There's a bit of the other, yes, uh, which always sounds a bit wrong, but this <laughs> to that, a bit of the other. <laughs> so on that basis, I think I'd read a lot into the book when I was a mm-hmm. teenager. I'd really invested in it because um, obviously these books were official new Doctor Who, yeah, and this was this was your very definite, you know, origin story of of the Doctor and the unfolding of the famous and rather tedious Cartmel master plan. Yes, rather deepening beyond all reason, I think. They, um, yeah. I, I think also at the time it was all we had, and so for, you know, as far as we ever knew, um, with the little kind of false dawn of Paul McGann aside, as far as we ever knew that, you know, this was going to be our future Doctor Who, so you sort of seized it yes. with both hands. And um, I've always been very kind of take it as it comes, I think, um, in terms of that sort of thing. And also because at that time I wasn't immersed in sort of active fandom, I think that had an effect. Because um, I've talked on The Randomizer a couple of times about how when Time and the Rani aired, that was the first time I was among fans when New Doctor Who came out. And so the McCoy right. era was always slightly tainted and inflected by the, the weight of peer pressure and, and public opinion. And it's really fascinating to me how that has changed over the years. And um I think, yeah, just looking back and revisiting things has, has changed that. So the, the new adventures existed in a slight vacuum, both of Doctor Who on TV and other opinions for me. Yeah, it was, it was, it was the sort of transition from Doctor Who being a kind of group communal event, mm. like a mass broadcast to something that, you know, maybe 5,000 people did on yeah. their sofa 
Yeah. You know, and some people, you know, read it in 25 minute segments every Saturday afternoon <laughs> at five o'clock. Some people maybe read the, read the whole book in one go and, and didn't take it quite so. Oh, that's a brilliant idea seriously. to crowbar a cliffhanger in every 25 pages or something. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it can be done. How did you feel having read it recently? Which I'm assuming you have reread oh, it. Very recently, yes. I finished yesterday. <laughs> yes, so. so did I. Marvelous. Excellent. Um, how uh, did it? How did it stack up compared to what you remembered it being? I got a few notes. Um, was sort of as I progressed through, it, I scribbled down any time something occurred to me, which wasn't that often. But um, generally speaking, I, 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 in terms of the start of the book, um, so I found it very creepy in a good way. With the kind of missing TARDIS door was a, a lovely visual idea, which um, mm. I think we hadn't seen anything like that before. And and then the creature in the walls and all of that kind of. It's making the TARDIS interior threatening when they finally do get inside it. Um, and I loved spending more time within the TARDIS. I've always liked that. It's like invasion mm. of time without the deck chairs. And um, the just, I, I think Chaz and I share this kind of love of any story that takes place beyond the console room. And yes. it, it still always feels like a treat, or um, obviously with greater or lesser success. But. Uh, <laughs> But the other thing that I totally realized rereading it was that, um, so I loved the description of the city and that was the one I think I, I can't chalk up to cleverness remembering that the city is actually the TARDIS, spoilers. And, um, but the cover art really helped me have a sense of the city and that image of Ace pushing the bicycle, um, and the process and the leech mm. thing in the background really helped me get beyond the kind of shock of the words and the, the different terminologies and so on. Um, when the bike turns up in the city and Ace finds it twice, <laughs> it's a great moment. And that uh, feels sort of in a funny way, like we've arrived at the cover moment. Um, mm. And mm. that was sort of an echo for me of, you know, that thing you get when you hear a story's title in the dialogue, that kind of little free song yes. and that underlining. And so that was it visually, if you like, when we yeah. got to the, the wheeling the bike through the city. Um, I don't think the crucible part of the title is actually mentioned, but I, I'm not entirely sure I even knew what a crucible was when I first well, read it. Well, <laughs> so when I first read it as a massive Jimmy White fan, um, okay. I was I was assuming that somehow the Seventh Doctor was going to manipulate things so that Jimmy White could finally win the snooker <laughs> World Championship. Match. <laughs> that sadly didn't happen, so it must have been some sort of scientific use of the word crucible, the kind of origin point of time travel. So mm -hmm. I, I, I always assumed it was it was the you know time, time as something that could be um, controlled and 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 used. Mm. It was the crucible of that development. I think it's also maybe the the sort of mashing together of the different zones in the city. Um, yeah, I'm going to mangle this now. But I think a crucible actually is where you combine metals or melt things together and so on. And, and so you're you're right. Then it was probably the two ships fusing together. And yeah, I thought this was an intensely visual book. Mm. Um, the, you know the. the Doctor and Ace at the start on Ealing Broadway. I used to, I used to live right near Ealing, so yeah. it was nice to be taken back to Ealing Broadway, um, where the, the sky is kind of melting and everything's going weird. And then the city, it's, it's a very, I think ultimately it would have made a brilliant cartoon strip or graphic novel. Yeah. Um, no, definitely that. I, I think that was the thing that the cover really helped me have any kind of handle on it officially because I, I loved the descriptions, but I did sort of feel like, especially because I was trying to keep reading at pace, perhaps. Yeah. But I did sort of yeah. feel like 
I was just kind of like uh, Twisted Towers, yes, clock thing, and, you know, yeah. and not not reading immersively as I feel it would be rewarding to do. So, I mean, so I noticed I've got I've got two modes of reading where you are literally a gog and hanging on every mm. word because it is someone brilliant, you know, like a, a Salman Rushdie or a Martin Amis or a Nicola Barker, and it's just every word's a delight. Or if it's just a two hundred and fifty. Were a page TV tie-in novel you've got to get through for the sake of doing a podcast about it. The plucking you example maybe, at random. Yeah, you, you you focus on the dialogue and you, mm. your eyes go, oh yeah, uh, descriptive passage. Maybe don't. But I did find myself bumping on it quite a lot, and mm. and let me qualify that by saying I think Mark Platt is one of the better and more literary writers for the range. I think his descriptions and his vocabulary are a lot more sophisticated than you'd get with Terence Dix. But I don't know how successful it was, because, as I say, I I thought this was a very visual story, and obviously it was originally conceived as a TV story. I I don't know how well it translated to the page, and I don't know that there was enough of it to justify... 250 odd pages of that I had a sort of sense of it peaking maybe two thirds three quarters of the way through and then mm. sort of I was aware there was more to come so um, and while it, I don't think it dragged so much I was sort of th- that kind of momentum of reading wore thin a little for me but I'd, I don't know I kind of I think you read with different eyes as well in terms of if when you know you're going to be saying things about it so I'm trying to sort of have feelings about it it's like the way I do art galleries <laughs> years ago, I sort of, <laughs> after after sort of going into them and sort of going, I don't know what how I experience this. What what was what do you do to to appreciate art? And and then as I just sort of wander through and stop at anything that caught my attention, and that was about as good as it got. So it was yeah. sort of like that. I think that yeah, um, I think that's the, the you can only respond to how a, a a piece of art impacts you, and if it yeah. if it doesn't, then move on because yeah. it's, it's not for you or you're not for it but no, if something exactly. does grab you then be grabbed yeah and yeah uh, i think I, I do love platt's style and the um i could see i know ghostlight as a text if you like thoroughly enough that i could see sort of common ground and i, I, I jotted down a couple of things that the i i, I think i had a feeling quite early or a half memory that the facials were the insect creatures the guards um but that's sort of the same trick that was pulled in Ghostlight with Josiah's husks. That there's yes. this, it's sort of forward in time rather than backwards. Um, so the the gar- the phasals will become these insectoid creatures rather than coming from them. But I felt a kind of common ground there. Although I believe the husks were kind of crowbarred in because GNT demanded a monster. <laughs> but I'd have forgotten that the insects in the that's, book were. That's yeah. true. That's very because I was I was going to suggest that because I think Platt pitched this mm. before coming up with Ghostlight. Right. Maybe that was the original idea that he then recycled when he wrote Ghostlight. Mm. But you're right in that JNT insisted on putting a monster in it. So but now the it's a real chicken and thing. egg, you know, which came first. Yes, it's <laughs> a sort of chicken and insect egg. The, um, <laughs> but the, no, I'd, I'd I think uh, obviously he's pleased or scared in a good way by having insectoid creatures, and definitely I, I think visually they had those vibes for me with kind of chittering faces and stuff, which is all quite creepy. Um, there's this I'd forgotten they were helmets rather than actual transformations as well. Mm. So the, until that scene where the oldest peccary removes 
his helmet and hands it to his younger self. And that, that was really quite chilling and effective, and you kind of feel the, the timey-wimeyness of it at yes. that point. Yes, that very strongly. Really, really impactful. There's the other plat thing, I think, is a kind of power of words theme, so... Um, or power of puns, which I'm all on board for, but so, uh, the like processes, sorry, like processes take time and t- that makes you a thief. That kind of wordplay. Yes. Um, that was nice. He, he brought a real verbal flourish yeah. to the, the dialogue. But. Uh, and actually, the doctor's sort of first chronological confrontation with the process by the Mercury streams both gives it its name, I think, and also gives it its obsessions, as he sort of says, or I can't remember the exact lines now, but, you know, he, he says, well, there's no future for you or something. <laughs> and that's slightly kind of, I think it's sort of a children's fiction or magical kind of thing of, you know, the, the words are taken literally or in a punning way and and then literally embodied in the form of the process. And I, I, I like that. I find that rich and pleasing. Yeah. yeah. I think this probably suffers from the the length it was required to mm-hmm. to be by the time you know by the time it was a three part tv story and it would have been 120 pages of target novelization yeah. <laughs> it would probably have been the perfect length but by the time you've got to effectively double that yeah um maybe that's where a lot of what felt like padding and perhaps that's that's me being unkind but it really did feel quite laborious mm. I thought it was going to be a lot harder to read than it was. Well, you'd refer to it as a potential leaden slog, I think was the phrase. Yes, because I'd really, I think because I've been talking to other people who'd recently reread it or were just bringing back memories of, oh, remember all those Mm -hmm. really long ten-syllable character names. And, and, you know, and the the fan-wankier elements. And I was just, I'd convinced myself, I think, out of nowhere Mm. and for no reason that it was going to be really hard work. So it's sort um, of the theme that's emerged in the randomizer has been the kind of tyranny of expectation, perhaps. And so, you know, I think you can go into something with low or high expectations and that can really affect how, how much it reaches you, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, at the time I read it firstly, so February 1992, <laughs> fact fans. Standing in the bookshelf. Um, guys, terrible being this. Treasure your memory for details. I just need help. Um, <laughs> I remember really liking all the the Pythia stuff and the mm. Rassilon and the the dawn of the Age of Reason and the the time of chaos and the the, the origins of how Gallifrey shifted from being a, a religious society to the Age of Reason and, and science mm. and the creation of the Time Lords and so on. And I was thinking about that before I started this reread, thinking, yeah, but that's just fan wank, isn't it? Hmm. You know, you you probably won't enjoy that so much now. But I still really did enjoy that. Excellent. And I don't normally, I'm not normally someone who has to, has to read about the 17 year old Davros losing his (laughs) legs or, you know, a really deep cut, um, you know, fan wank. But when it's done this well and when it's, um, because this isn't really fan wank about the Doctor necessarily. This is this is expanding the horizons of the existing mythos. What struck um, me about the Gallifrey stuff was that it's um, we as you say, we're so much closer in time to when Gallifrey was on TV as a fairly kind of high coloured, dull, decadent place with um, you know the, the the Time Lords. We had sort of settled into how they were depicted since. Um, 
the 80s of, of yeah. the TV show. And so it was quite the wrench to suddenly be plunged into this very populous and very sort of a disparate and vibrant sort of society. And and then all through the eyes of Vale as well, which is interesting. Cause I remember kind of not knowing... He's talking about individualism in this society of telepaths and you know, not knowing for a while if Vale's going to be a kind of sympathetic character you know, or another hero mm-hmm. in the book. But um, yeah, and then the, the Pythia Pythia is, is a very classic kind of verbal image. In fact, I kind of, I've recently played the um, Elden Ring game and there's characters you bump, you bump into in that who are what are they called? Finger crones or something? And that's basically what was in my mind's eye this time oh, reading it through, because they're kind of wizened female figures who dispense, you know, obscure wisdom and um, occasionally move the plot along. But, yeah, it's... Um, I, I don't think... I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. The thing with Fanwank is I think it's, it's born out of love. It's born out of celebration. And the, mm. um, that idea of like people wanting to go and put all their favorite monsters in one story together it's um but of course the trick is if you can tell a compelling story and be convincing rather than just kind of tick all the boxes you'd like to tick i mean this would have been the this would have been my first exposure to fan wang <laughs> fan wang was very new this is possibly you know the new adventures coming along in 91 was probably the first opportunity for fan wang yeah and at the time we didn't know that perhaps it, it wasn't as canon as it as it was sold to <laughs> us as being. Um, so, you know, I took it very seriously, and I, I was like, oh, I want all future books to, to mention this. But now, obviously, yeah. it's just one possible interpretation of a, a set of events which don't really pertain to the main characters. But one thing that I did think was that you've got this very kind of potentially violent and adult kind of confrontation between the the, the Pythia's religion and the mm. Age of Reason. And if I was, I don't know, if I was a Welsh television writer <laughs> who's who's being tasked to come up with all manner of spin-offs of Doctor Who, I would totally do like a Game of Thrones five series <laughs> oh my goodness. spin-off about the end of the Age of, uh, the Time of Chaos and the beginning of Rassilon and the, the Time... Society. I think that'd be lovely. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else would watch it apart from me. Write a synopsis, you never know. Um, yeah. Well, it's like my other idea for a spin-off series was, again, very much on the same track. It was like the first ever like proper prototype TARDIS, and you'd have six Time Lords in it, and oh, they'd yeah. set off, and then it wouldn't work, and they'd just be travelling around. But there'd be six of them, and one of them would be a bit of a shit, and one of them would be mm. a bit of a uh, you know hero. And basically there, you've got Blake seven, yes, but there's six of them, but they're in a TARDIS, so so that would be good. That's I, fine. I think if anyone's listening from the BBC, um, <laughs> Sorry, big finish, help me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be do a public service by uh, enshrining these ideas in a medium that can be duly burnt in time. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think that's glorious. The um, the early time travel stuff. There's just little kind of nuggets of that in the in the Gallifrey story and. Um, in the the crew, and it's sort of like we're a bit too early in the timeline. It would almost be a sequel to this that would be the next stage where Rassilon has taken over. And um, there's a little bit at the end which I really enjoyed, where he's playing with a, a toy they describe as the onion toy. Yes. So the layers of the onion, each one inside is bigger than the one that came from. And I was like, that's fun. And it reminded me of that great scene in um, 
uh, oh, is it Robots of Death with the box? With the boxes. Yeah. But if I could place this inside that, oh. I could put my onion skin inside the smaller onion skin yeah. and all that. So, so maybe the first TARDIS is just really stank of onions. I don't know. That's possibly true. That that would imply a sort of French element. Yeah. <laughs> um, Gallifrey's not in Ireland; it's in the south of France. Yeah, that that would be amazing, though. Sort of a, a, a TARDIS that was modelled on Paris, yeah. like internally, and so it's the French. The, look at the I shape of the that. modern consoles. Actually, they are quite oniony. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we've we've hit across the this onion thing. theory. Yes, that can be. Right, we can do a, a white paper about this called Onion Theory: A History of. And I don't know what type of vegetables they are. <laughs> oh, um, allium or that's garlic or something. Yeah, al- al- that sounds right. Um, but yeah, a history of, of, of them as they pertain to the creation of Doctor Who. So again, you heard it here first, listeners. <laughs> and probably um, last. It's all about onions. <laughs> um, so for you, what was, what's, what, what's your most sort of positive takeaway from reading Times Crucible again? That's a good question. Um, I mean, there's the general thing of having been reminded of the books as, as historical artifacts, if you like. Um, but specifically this one, um, what else have I got? Well, I'll tell you the one thing that stuck out of my <laughs> was the line, um, about, uh, this, the, this could be the most momentous impact since Adric hit Mexico. <laughs> and it's written as Which if it's the doctor. Is- it is stunning that, you know, you'd ever portray the Doctor, because subconsciously, at least, we know the Doctor is still very, very upset about what happened to Andrew. Yeah, or you hope he um, is. It's the decent you know, character you hope for. The Doctor the, fan wank. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I like the specificity of it, of it being definitely Mexico that he hit. But I've always had a problem with that, because when you watch Earthshock, you can see the Starliner blow up. Oh, yes. So he didn't hit the earth. Maybe just up. all the rubble or debris. Just rained down. Rained like down, a, yeah. Yeah, it could be that. Well, I take it the time of Earthshock tangent again. Uh, that was not a, a solid, a, a proven theory for the extinction. That was just one of a few. And so I think it, time has since made it uh, the most strongly evidenced theory. But um, at the time, Earthshock was kind of prescient, or at least putting its eggs against the... Uh, in the basket that came through in the end, but they uh, they they bet they bet Adric against the house, yeah. and they <laughs> oh, won. And awesome. talking of eggs, um, the um, so uh, they preempt kill the moon by several decades when uh, yes, there was that that the, the moon, moon is an egg, an egg. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I so noticed that. That was quite fun, and I'd completely forgotten the the this has an origin story for the sisterhood of Karen as well. Um, yeah, or the sisterhood oh, of yeah. Karen, as I've written in my notes. The sisterhood of Karen. That's a very um, <laughs> so the, the Gillen was, fan club. Yeah. Um, oh God, I'd join that. Yeah, I mean, I'd put on the robes and skulk about in the back of a cave. Um, God, yeah. Sure. But the ending felt very abrupt. Actually, I thought as well. It, um, it just it, it sort of. Just the the cat's still there, and that was that was kind of bomb done. But mm. uh, obviously part of a trilogy, I guess. So, speaking that, yeah, yeah, it did. Uh, it did. I think I think mercifully because some of the new <laughs> adventures, the story would finish a good fifty pages before the book did. Yeah, and there'd be just a sort of uh, you know assault course of epilogues and afterwards. And, well, it's um, the template for the end of the David Tennant era, I suppose. I suppose so. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think I think Platt. Um, had a lot of great ideas in this book that mm-hmm. other people have either subconsciously revived or has you know cherry picked from the yeah. new series or whatever. One one of the things that I think he did really well um, was in his depiction of Ace because 
this is really identifiably the ace as portrayed by Sophie Aldridge until quite recently. Mm, no, and absolutely. As as the books go on, the the character goes through a number of changes and becomes, I would say, increasingly distanced from that beginning. So it it was really like seeing an old friend. Yeah. To to see a, a young um, ace who's still kind of. You know, she's she's not entirely sure of the Doctor yet. She's still quite new aboard the TARDIS. She's mm-hmm. still, you know, slightly wary of him. I sort of feel the shadow of Curse of Fenric in terms of that slight distrust of his scheming. And, yeah. And also, yeah, you're absolutely right. And there's such interiority for Ace. And um, there's so little of the Doctor, especially in the first half, that, you know, she's really driving a lot of it. Yeah. And it's interesting that... Um, the the doctor's not in this book very much. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in he's in Warhead even less. Right. Uh, I think he's got something like three scenes in Warhead. Gosh. So by the time you get to Witchmark in this trilogy, you're really thinking, well, I hope the doctor's going to turn up at some point. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think it's, it's lovely, um, and I, I, when when the doctor's there, especially at the end when he's you know come back to himself, then I, I do really heard Sylvester in it as well. And I, yes. I, I, I'm so fond of that era. I actually recently finished rewatching the classic series and just yeah. ad- adored McCoy's era so much. And it's, I mean, yeah, it's it's astonishing. Over the last ten years, it's kind of um, gone through such a reappraisal with so many people. And yeah. I, you know, I loved it at the time, but I loved it with that guilt of knowing that you shouldn't because <laughs> it, it wasn't, wasn't cool. objectively very good. Yeah. But I did love it, and I thought I think- he was. Perhaps the best doctor. Yeah, it did build to a high. So I, I guess you know the the end of uh, the classic series. It was just getting good again, which is also tragic. But I'd rather have had it that way than it dribble out. And yes, if it had ended on season twenty two, that would have been yeah. Awful. They um and I, again informed by the coverage from flight flight through entirety. I think there's that thing of like they are now making it with nobody really watching them in terms of BBC hierarchy and so on. So it's kind of, let's do some cool stuff. And they really yeah. do. And yeah. I, I think, so that's like the launch pad into which the new adventures come. It's this kind of re- renewed ambition and also renewed sort of wish to be adult in the good sense and uh, and political and so on. So we do get novels like No Future coming up. And um, also, you know, there, there's that continued exploration of ace who is definitely the richest companion character for a long time um mm. and then of course we get you know it, it, it all kind of implodes and ace is turned into a gun toting leather clad kind of fantasy figure and but you're right this is just in that sort of sweet spot before it goes too far <laughs> see i never really bought into that because you had all this um all these sort of writers who I guess were, you know, they were mostly men, they were mostly in their 20s, mm. and they were mostly, you know, as men in their 20s are, just 24-7 horny. So even when they're writing a Doctor Who book, yeah. they're still feeling a bit... Rrr. So it's like, yeah, let's make Ace really sexy. And you think, yeah, but it's Sophie Aldred, though, isn't it? And you can't really... You know, when you've got new characters like Bernice that you mm. can do anything you like with because they're not... You know they don't come with a TV depiction to yeah. draw against. Whereas what they what they do with Ace trying to sex her up just feels faintly ludicrous. Yeah, I like that. There's the little hints in this book that you know she's she's sort of attracted to Shanzi, um at the end, and you know would like him to join the TARDIS. And um, there's that kind of 
relationship of intensity as well, which I think it probably mm. shares with Sorin and Curse of Henrik. And, mm. um, so this is still at this kind of cusp of adulthood, and but so resourceful and independent and determined. But you do see her put through the ringer as well. It, you, know, you know, she cries in this and she's exhausted and, you know, she kind of has to pick it up and keep going and doesn't know where the doctor is. So all of that, I think, is, it gives her so much good stuff to do and I just like you said I just loved being in, in her company somewhere yeah so when you think back to the new adventures and, and uh, you know um, and what's to come because this is mm. obviously the fifth new adventure and uh, I believe there were 61 of them mm. I could be wrong I'd like to pretend there's an element of doubt but I am that much of a nerd um where where which which of the books and the writers um did you really enjoy and and where where does the series go that works for you um my memories are so slight now and sometimes it's also that thing of remembering the received wisdom that's settled into fan lore since as well so that particularly with that the sort of trajectory for ace because i couldn't really tell you which books um that was happening in, but I have a feeling, I, I recall possibly from your introductory podcast, which refreshed my memory, <laughs> that um, Love and War, which I the other day called Love and Monsters by accident, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but Love and War is the kind of, it's one that I did remember at the time the Houthi um, creatures were kind of grotesque and body horror and really stuck mm. with me. Um, and that kind of final straw for Ace, I think the first time, it's like she leaves and I believe comes back, but this is where it gets fuzzy for me. Um, I remember Happy Endings, which I think was that the 50th book? Um, it was. Yeah. And um, I also, I loved Bernice and um, just really listened to quite a lot of the Benny audios and read a lot of the Benny standalone books. Um, oh. So really enjoyed that character. Um and again, it was part of that being Doctor Who adjacent. I would just devour it like everything else. Um, what else? Um, no future I've clearly remembered because there's certain, there's just moments that stand out. Again, pun based. There's, um, I expected this in, uh, Revelation and neither missed it or it didn't happen, but there's a line I remember about I fought Trelaw and Trelaw won from a Paul Cornell book. Yes, I'm sure that. Does Trelaw come You know, back? that 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 probably was in No Future, because yeah. wasn't it Trelaw's daughter or granddaughter was that a character in sense. No Future? Yeah. I was kind of waiting but, for it when I read Revelations, yeah. and it didn't have... Well, that, is, that is a belter of a... Well, there's the other one is um, the, the contriving to get uh, Paul McCartney in the scene so he can say, chap with wings, five rounds rapid. <laughs> 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 I just love that pun. Um, I vaguely remember the trajectory of, is it Kadiatu Lethbridge-Stewart? Yeah. Um, but again, sort of quite uh, sort of unclear about which books. So it's really scattered memories. And um, mm. I remember the Chelonians um, and uh, Blood Heat, the Turnstick's Vampire one, sort of stuck yes. in my mind a little bit. Again, very little oh. in terms of detailed plot stuff. But Lungbarrow and The Dying Days, of course, being unique. Um, and of course, my boo boo of not buying it when I could. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it has a way of cementing a book's place in your memory. but... No. So obviously, obviously, you'll have learned from that lesson, and you would have bought all of the Eighth Doctor books as soon as they came out, right? <laughs> well, again, I, I, I eventually acquired Dying Days, and I did pretty much buy, yeah, the Eighth Doctor and the what do they call them, the Missing Doctors or the Past Doctor Adventures the, the, as well? Yeah, Past yeah. Doctors. Yeah, all the colourful ones I think of because the Virgin ones are all white, of course, and the um, yeah. uh, yes, and I, like you, I think I, I kind of found them. 
a little less engaging, at least at first. But mm. um, I did, I did, and would have read all of them at the time. And then, when my son was born, dismantled a lot of my physical Doctor collection in terms of um, books and tangible sort of collected materials, photos, and so on. I know, I know. It's like um, got us through some lean years, but I, I do. Now my fandom's been renewed again by becoming a podcaster about it. I think I do regret it. So if someone came to you, say some, say some, say the Pythia came to you <laughs> and said, you can have all this stuff back, but I'll take your son. Ooh. Would you be tempted? I mean, most, mostly not. No, I think, um, he's a, the, he's a good lad, isn't he? Yeah. Well, it, it, he, uh, grew up with my Doctor Who fandom sort of. Uh, absorbed from the ether and um, has recently sort of said, you know, I only talk about Doctor Who because you like it. <laughs> it's, it's just like, out. <laughs> Agent Orange here. I get paid to participate in this show whether or not I actually say anything in any given episode, so it makes no odds to me this month whether or not I... Oh, you want me to do something. Yes, I have to introduce the afterwards. That'll be a good test of my enormous computing capacity, won't it? Here, then, are the thoughts of the rest of the gang in our reading group. Uh, we have comments from DK, from Alex, James, from Kevin. I, I should just clarify, that's not Alex, James, from Blur. That's DK, comma, Alex, comma, James, comma, Kev, comma, Liam. Um, I might be back next season. Who knows? I might, I might find something else to do. Um, I'm quite hopeful of a part in EastEnders. Cat's Cradle Times Crucible has sat on my shelf for a long time, but largely it's been undisturbed. It's a very odd little beast of a new adventure, partly because of where it came and partly because of what it is. As we all know, the new adventures started with the Time Worms series of four books, and for better or worse, they gave us four really good introductions to this new set of broad and deep, more adult adventures for the Seventh Doctor and Ace. Now, by the time Cat's Cradle came along, we knew the books were going to start being solo standalone adventures. So having this extra trilogy of linked stories that didn't seem to be all that linked just seemed like they were holding off the inevitable. And I certainly remember as a young reader wanting to get to those standalone books. As for the story itself, I read this when I was 12. And it really was just a book... I read. I didn't really understand it. I certainly didn't enjoy it. I thought some of the ideas were kind of neat, and I know that some of them seeped quite away into fandom and were talked about for a long time, but it was pretty impenetrable. Later on, I would try and read it again, but I didn't get very far. It still seemed very, very impenetrable. And that's a shame. Yes, books can be difficult. Books can be intelligent. Books are allowed to be hard to read sometimes, but this just seemed a little bit too impenetrable. So I don't think it's Mark Platt's best work. I didn't enjoy it when I was young, and I haven't reread it properly as an adult. So I'll be interested to see if this podcast encourages me to have another look, or whether it's going to spend another few years on the shelf. Hello, I'm Alex Wilcock. Long-time New Adventures lover and, ooh, you're saying interesting things. I must send something in to We're All Stories, listener. First time actually getting round to it before the deadline. 
But Time's Crucible is one of my most vivid new adventures memories because of deadlines too. The NAs were ideally timed for me when I went to university, both for broader and deeper worlds and for a time when I had no TV but could afford the odd book, though quite badly timed for getting work done. This book came out in the middle of my second year, just at the point when it was becoming clear that I was working extremely hard with great dedication, but on politics and not academia. Except for the morning after I'd bought Time's Crucible. I had to go to lectures at midday and through the afternoon, so I sat down to read just the first chapter. Anyway, I finished it by dusk. This really grabbed me. It's so fizzing with ideas, turning history inside out. The TARDIS inside out. I see what you did there. Putting Ace at the centre. And it's so Doctor Who to do past, present and future. Those tantalising glimpses of ancient Gallifrey and science versus legend that'll come back. The absolute weirdness in the now and the stolen future as a not very subtle cry of fury at the series being cancelled when it was great. One turn of phrase Terence Dix often used when characters had a terrible realisation was a thrill of horror. And I got that from Mark Platt here with the creepy insect-helmeted guards and the moment Ace stares at the fifth guard. That's the most vivid moment for me of many here. The new adventures meant and mean a huge amount to me. They're still one of my defining who eras and this book is one of the crucial ones. There's a story when the Pet Shop Boys were painstakingly putting together West End Girls, thinking, this is going to be a new kind of dance music. Then Blue Monday came out first, and they thought, oh, well, that's that then. I think of Time Worm Revelation and Cat's Cradle Time's Crucible as the NA's Blue Monday and West End Girls. Both are brilliant, but more than that, both are bold, exciting, defining, new though I also sometimes wonder how they'd be seen if Mark Platts had come out first. And it's not just the influence on later new adventures. Cybertech did a theme for Time's Crucible, looping round and round with a great rasping bubbling for the process. And even several New Who stories owe a bit to it, especially, I think, Heaven Sent going round and round, and where it's really happening. And is it a stretch that the Vale's named for Vale? I ought to root for Vale. I was told I had the potential, then totally burned out too. But he's still an utter git, sorry. Time's Crucible is, to me, symptomatic of one of the big problems with the new adventures. Doctor Who as a television series, it basically mostly pulled in writers who had some experience of writing science fiction, weren't heavily invested in the mythos of Doctor Who. I know there were some exceptions, but really it kind of brought in a lot of new ideas for stories which didn't rely heavily on past continuity. Time's Crucible, being the fifth book in the New Adventures series, has two major problems for me. Firstly, it's just come after Time Worm Revelation, which in itself is a whole other long issue. 
But really, Times Crucible, at its heart, has got the problem that suddenly we've got a fan or someone writing who wants to go deep into the mythos of Gallifrey and Time Lords and everything like that, but that's not really kind of going to appeal to a casual fan. I found it a real struggle to read when it first came out, and it then colours an awful lot of the entire Virgin range. Part of me really wishes Time's Crucible had never been written. I think if we had a Virgin range that didn't start with this assault on his background of Gallifrey, his loads of ancient mythology and lore, and we're going to rewrite things, I think if we'd avoided that, we could have had a much smoother start to the new adventures. Time's Crucible is a good science fiction story, but the problem is it's just not a good Doctor Who story. Hi all. So this month, we're back near the very start of the Virgin New Adventures with the 1992 fifth novel and the first written by Mark Platt. This is Cat's Cradle Times Crucible. And if I'm honest, it's all a bit of a mixed bag, really. Yes, there are some clear attempts at clever world building and expanding the universe of Doctor Who slash Time Lord lore. Yes, the peek into the time of chaos of ancient Gallifrey and the cult of Pythia is certainly new. And yes, the TARDIS colliding with a prototype time ship and turning inside out into a city where you can cross time streams as easily as crossing a river is definitely a cool concept. This book wants to be complex. This is from the guy who wrote Ghostlight, after all. And I'm all for being thrown in at the deep end and not being spoon-fed a plot. And clearly, with hindsight, we know that mentions of Lungbarrow and Looms will at least be picked up a long way down the line. But at times, it all feels like it was just trying too hard. The writing style is by turns incredibly clunky, or incredibly convoluted, or, well, sadly, incredibly dull. Parts, especially in the first half, feel overwritten to the point of being meaningless, as if the author wants to show off how abstract he could be and how many torturous similes he can cram in. Purple prose that genuinely made me sigh with exasperation. And just what does swerving in the command frog mean anyway? Things do get a bit better plot-wise as the book progresses, from the point that Ace climbs into the TARDIS attic and finds the Wilby Doctor waiting for her, things start to come together. A bit like the tower at the heart of the city, you can see the cogs and gears of the ending sliding into place. I'd figured out there must be a third process a good while before it was revealed, although I was never really clear on what any of them really wanted beyond the future. The problem is, by that point, I just really didn't care about the fate of any of the supporting characters. The Chronauts were, by and large, very underdeveloped. Apart from maybe Shonzi and Vale, they're paper-thin. And even those two are just a veneer of characterisation. Ace fares a little better, but only because her character has been developed to a degree before this novel. Her horror at the thought of being turned into an insect guard felt real. But even she's not consistent. When exactly did she develop feelings for Shonzi? They only seem to have known each other for five minutes. In the end, there's a lot happening with the sphere contracting, the TARDIS being reborn, platforms whizzing up and down, and multiple versions of the same people and monsters in the same scene. It all seems that this stuff's meant to be of incredibly importance, yet I felt utterly detached from it, as it's all presented in a clinical, cold fashion. Much like the deleted alternate futures, it didn't matter. I just couldn't connect with any of it. It was an odd feeling. So, despite its grand themes and ideas and illusions... Despite it trying something new, 
Time's Crucible is, at least to my eye, a very flawed book. I'm glad I read it, but it's definitely not one that I'd go back to anytime soon. And by the way, isn't Mercury incredibly toxic? Not sure anybody should wade in through a river of that. Although, describing the descending moon egg as the most momentous impact since Adric hit Mexico, that did raise a smile. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about Time's Crucible. Now, I'm looking back on this book through the prism of a, a younger, less jaded, less bitter, less cynical uh, little Liam who was uh, embarking on a journey of discovery uh, of the Virgin New Adventures leading up to the 30th anniversary in 1993. So going back to 1992, looking at this book, what strikes me is how instantly following the Time Worm series, these books are less fantastical. We're talking harder sci-fi now. And perhaps only from my perspective this represents i would imagine john nathan turner's last um kiss from the past impression upon the vna range i recall somewhere and i'm sure that ian will correct me or find the relevant source material that uh, there was a interview done where jnc talk about a loosely planned thing that he had with a series of trilogy of books about the doctor getting back to the tardis and being physically separated from the ship so i would imagine that was the original impetus for times crucible warhead Witchmark. although in deference to it and, and in opposition to the time worm quadrilogy it's a lot looser you know there's it really flows through the books quite nicely um what i was ironically very struck about with Mark Platt's writing is he likes to write very dense Baroque passages. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of peak in there. There's a lot of Gorman gas. We see these kind of themes going running through from Ghostlight uh, to Longbarrow, and even echoes of it in the modern series with the timeless children and flocks. You know, as we look at the iconography of the the ruined kind of shattered multi layered house, it's very you know Mervyn Peak, very Gorman gassed. So. This is a story that could not have been done on television. You know, it would have broken the budget for not just that year, probably the adjoining year, and going straight into Television Centre 4 while they were trying to fill up only fools and horses. You know, this probably would have bankrupted the whole floor. So, but the imagery in it is striking. You know, we're talking about that lovely cover by Peter Elson, the cat striding through the wilderness as Ace pushes a bike uh, through this kind of apocalyptic, nightmarish kind of Frank Herbert Dune landscape with a, you know, the 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 uh, the eponymous monster. I won't spoil it for you. In the background, um, it always struck me when Elson, Fred Gambino, and a couple of other people used. Aldred uh, McCoy and put them into that kind of fantastical milieu for the cover um, as a child I found that very visually arresting and it really kind of drew my attention to the project Mark Platt's writing and narrative fits this style perfectly it's very flowery it's very operatic it's very descriptive um he likes a lot of world building you know we saw this in ghost light there's tremendous kind of comments on um societal discourse and you know the kind of the operating kind of the operatic relationship between the classes you know i mean i always thought it was bizarre that people found ghost light you know very um 
difficult to understand because for me even as a child I thought it was a commentary on you know uh, Darwinism and the life cycle and, and human evolution you know we're talking literally you know stages of the husks shedding of its skin we're looking at the Reverend Matthews we're looking at um, Josiah's ship as it kind of evolutionary pushes through to ascend to the next higher plane of existence so in many ways um, Platt does a meta commentary on not just the show but the nature of storytelling that we're talking about here so I found there was a lot to enjoy in Times Crucible um, and I, what I also liked is we're starting to see the Doctor I remember that wonderful quote from Benovanovich where he said you know the Doctor is like a, a distant mountain range you know you can't quite see or you know perceive exactly what he or she is up to through the distance and never more so is that evident here as we kind of see those first kind of flourish of books pass through and the VNAs begin to develop their own visual and narrative identity so for me it was uh, it was it wasn't one of the best books but it was certainly one of the most interesting ones and uh, thematically provided the format uh, with a huge amount more of um, backstory and uh, narrative emphasis that it would, you know, carry them through another 50-so books. Anyway, so uh, sayonara, guys. Till the next time. So, a uh, bit of a mixed bag, really. If you like fan-servicing deep dives into the lore of ancient Gallifrey, this one's right up your ailing Broadway. If you're looking for a fast-paced, fun adventure, um... Uh, uh, well, mm. I'd just like to thank everyone who's been involved in this first series of World Stories in the End. So many people have given me their time, their voices and their opinions on these 30-year-old TV tie-in books. Thank you all so much. If you're a fan of the Virgin Era or the BBC Eighth Doctor books, get involved. Follow me on Twitter, I'm at Broad and Deep. Say hi and subscribe to the show. We'll be back in September 2023 for a new series. So until then, happy times and places. interesting takes on where this new series of adventures... Oh, fuck off.